This is The Church is the World, Chapter 2, Episode 1, an overview of the history of the Pentateuch, better known as the first five books of the Old Testament. The intent of this episode is to provide a summary, probably better termed a general outline, of the first five books and the stories embedded in them. I will also provide a few specifics on the societies that impacted the peoples found in these books and how all of them intermeshed in the history of that part of the world. Finally, I'll dive a little into the theory surrounding the writing of these books. In the episodes that follow, a more detailed dive will be conducted. And a program note. As I currently envision this chapter, the episodes focused on Genesis will probably take some time. After all, this is my first foray into that particular geographic region of the world, as well as into the societies of the time. This region will be the focus of pretty much the entire Old Testament, so it's important to lay the groundwork for that area early on. So, there will be episodes concerning the societies outside of Judaism that impacted it, as well as a great deal of information concerning physical geographies. And unless you are a rare exception and a well-versed student of that era, I can guarantee you will learn something. So let's get started with an overview of the Pentateuch. First, of course, there is Genesis. Before exploring the history found in the book, I'll delve into the history of the book itself. I'm presenting the competing theories on who wrote it and when it was written. This will be done from a traditional perspective as well as a linguistic and archaeological perspective. My goal is not to present a definitive answer, as such a thing does not exist. I will simply present a summary of what researchers and religious adherents believe to be true. Genesis begins with what is called the primeval history, found in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. It is the story of the world's beginnings and the descent from Adam. This is followed by the story of the three patriarchs, namely Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the story of Joseph, found in Genesis chapters 12 through 50. Concurrently, the story of the four matriarchs, specifically Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel, is told as well. God gives to the patriarchs a promise of the land of Canaan, but at the conclusion of Genesis, the sons of Jacob end up leaving Canaan for Egypt due to a regional famine, and they were following a rumor that there was a grain storage and distribution facility in Egypt. Genesis proves problematic in tying these stories to independently verifiable history, so I will explore other creation stories found in other cultures for the similarities and differences to the one, or some say two, found in Genesis. After that time period, the history of the region becomes clearer. I'll get into the history of the Akkadians, the Amorites, the Sumerians, and the other people that surround the area of Mesopotamia. As the Bible stories transition from southwestern Asia to northern Africa, I'll explore the history of the Egyptians, both before and during that period, and in doing so, there will be some overlap with the history of the book of Exodus. Overall, it must be remembered that the basic narrative expresses the central theme. God creates the world, including the first man and woman, and appoints man as his regent. But man proves disobedient, and God destroys his world through the flood. The new post-flood world is equally corrupt. God does not destroy it, instead calling one man, Abraham, to be the seed of its salvation. At God's command, Abraham descends from his home into the land of Canaan, given to him by God, where he dwells as a sojourner, as does his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and ultimately aided by his son Joseph, the children of Israel descended to Egypt, 70 people in all, including their households. And God promises them a future of greatness. 
Genesis ends with Israel and Egypt, ready for the coming of Moses and the Exodus. The narrative is punctuated by a series of covenants with God, successively narrowing in scope from all mankind, as was seen in the covenant with Noah, to a special relationship with one person alone, as was seen with Abraham and his descendants through Isaac and Jacob. Christianity has traditionally interpreted Genesis as the prefiguration of certain cardinal Christian beliefs, specifically the need for salvation, which is the hope or assurance of all Christians, and the redemptive act of Christ on the cross, as the fulfillment of covenant promises as the Son of God. After Genesis, of course, there is Exodus. Exodus begins with the story of God's revelation to his people Israel through Moses, who leads them out of Egypt found in Exodus 1-18 through to Mount Sinai. There the people accept the covenant with God, agreeing to be His people in return for agreeing to abide by His law. In the Jewish tradition, Moses receives the Torah from God and teaches His laws and covenant to the people of Israel, found in Exodus 19-24. through The book also talks about the first violation of the covenant when the golden calf was constructed in Exodus 32-34. through Exodus includes the instructions on the building of the tabernacle and concludes with its actual construction. The history punctuated by this book will continue with the Egyptians and a look into the geography of the region from Egypt all the way up to modern-day Israel. After Exodus, there is Leviticus. Leviticus begins with the instructions to the Israelites on how to use the tabernacle, which they had just built, found in Leviticus chapters 1-10. through 10. This is followed by rules of what is clean and unclean, found in chapters 11 through 15, which includes the laws of the slaughter of animals and which animals are permissible to eat. The Day of Atonement is introduced, found in Leviticus 16, and various moral and ritual laws, sometimes referred to as the Holiness Code, is found in chapters 17 through 26. Also, Leviticus 26 provides a detailed list of rewards for following God's commandments, as well as a detailed list of punishments for not following them. While the book is essentially a list of rules, it does not provide much direction into the societies outside of those described in the book. Therefore, the plan I have today, which of course is subject to change, is to do a somewhat deep dive into the rules and explore their influence on societies then and now. After Leviticus, there is Numbers, and I purposely phrased it that way just so it would sound grammatically incorrect. The book of Numbers tells of how Israel consolidated itself as a community at Mount Sinai in Numbers 1-9, through and then set out from Sinai, moving towards Canaan, and sending spies out into the land in Numbers 10-13. through Due to their lack of faith at various points, but especially at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 14, the Israelites were condemned to wander for 40 years in the desert instead of immediately entering into the Promised Land. Moses sins and is told he would not live to enter the Promised Land in Numbers 20. At the end of Numbers, the people of Israel moved from Kadesh to the plains of Moab opposite Jericho ready to enter the Promised Land. Now that the people are approaching the land, they will eventually settle. Sorry for the spoiler. I will have more on the societies surrounding that area to dive into. There are the Canaanites and the Edomites. And I'll also get into the geography of the region, as it was then and approximately where that lines up today. The last book of the Pentateuch is Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is structured as a series of speeches by Moses on the plains of Moab opposite Jericho also referred to as the Mishnah Torah in Hebrew. The essential message of the book is a rebuke of the children of Israel to not worship idolatry, to not follow the ways of Canaan, and to cling to God. In Deuteronomy chapters 12-26, through Moses proclaims the law, 
creating what some have called the Deuteronomic Code. In summary, there were laws concerning religious observances, officials, civil law, and criminal law. I'll get into more detail when I do a deeper dive into that book in a later episode. At the end of the book, Moses is allowed to see the promised land from the top of a mountain, but then, as promised, he dies. The text emphasizes that no one knows where Moses was finally buried. Knowing that he was nearing the end of his life, Moses had appointed Joshua his successor, bequeathing to him the mantle of leadership. Soon afterwards, Israel begins the conquest of Canaan. With this book, as with Leviticus, I will explore other codes from nearby regions that are of the same era and potentially earlier. This will include the Code of Hammurabi, the Code of Uru-Gajina, and perhaps touch on a few other lesser-known codes and laws. So who wrote the Pentateuch? Jewish tradition is that the Pentateuch was written by Moses. Jewish tradition is that the Pentateuch was written by Moses, with the exception of the last eight verses of Deuteronomy with those being written by Joshua describing Moses' death and burial. Alternatively, Rashi, an 11th century rabbi and scholar, believed that, at least for these books, that God spoke them, and Moses wrote them with his tears. Moses as the author is a Jewish tradition, later adopted by Christian scholars, in that the Torah was dictated to Moses by God, with the exception of the last eight verses of Deuteronomy, like I previously mentioned. Today, a wide majority of biblical scholars accept the theory that the Pentateuch does not have a single author, and that it is a composition that took place over centuries. The so-called documentary hypothesis suggests that the books were derived from originally independent, parallel, and complete narratives, which were subsequently combined into the current form by a series of editors. The number of these editors is usually set at four, but this is not an essential part of the hypothesis. The hypothesis was first proposed in the 18th and 19th centuries, from the attempt to reconcile the inconsistencies in the biblical text. Biblical scholars, using what is called source criticism, eventually arrived at the theory that the books were composed of selections woven together from separate, at times inconsistent, sources, each originally a complete and independent document. By the end of the 19th century, it was generally agreed that there were four primary sources combined into their final form by a series of editors. Julius Wellhausen, a German biblical scholar of the 19th and 20th centuries, proposed the order of the sources chronologically, sometimes abbreviated by the letters J-E-D-P. The theory was based on an idea first proposed by Jean Ostruck in the 18th century. He also placed them in the context of the evolving religious history of Israel, which he viewed as having an ever-increasing priestly power. He is said to have thought that writing itself did not develop until about 1000 BC, so it would have been impossible for the books to have been written before that time. Therefore, he assumed that the sagas, epics, poetry, etc., which were later used to compile the Bible, were passed down orally for millennia. Wellhausen's proposal was that there was a Yahweh source, written around 950 BC in the southern kingdom of Judah, specifically at the court of Solomon. More recent research suggests that it was written by a Jewish priest just before or during the Babylonian exile of the 6th century BC. This source is the J in J-E-D-P. Next, there was an Elois source, written about 850 BC in the northern kingdom of Israel. This was the E in J-E-D-P. After that, there was a Deuteronomist source, written around 600 BC in Jerusalem during a period of religious reform, this was the D, of course. 
And last, there was the Priestly Source, written around 500 BC and thought to be written by Ezra. More recently, proponents of the JEDP hypothesis believe that the final edition was made late in the Exilic period or soon thereafter. Scholars use a few repeated and duplicated stories to identify the separate sources. In Genesis, this includes three different accounts of a patriarch claiming that his wife was his sister, two creation stories, and two versions of Abraham sending Hagar and Ishmael into the desert. In the last 40 years, biblical scholars have proposed an additional theory, specifically that the Eloist source is now widely regarded as no more than a variation of the Yahwist, while the priestly source is increasingly seen not as a document, but as a body of revisions and expansions to the Yahwist material. In writing the patriarchal history, the Yahwists drew from four separate segments of traditional stories about Abraham, Jacob, Judah, and Joseph, combining them with genealogies, itineraries, and the motif of God's promise to create a unified whole. Similarly, some scholars believe that when the Yahwists composed the early history, he drew on Greek and Mesopotamian sources, editing and adding them to create a unified work that fits his theological agenda. The Yahwistic work was then revised and expanded into the final edition by the authors of the Priestly Source. But as I'll show when I cover the creation story, the story in Genesis is not only similar to Greek and Mesopotamian stories, but it is also vaguely similar to Native American creation stories. And it is absolutely certain that no matter when the Priestly Source documented the creation story, he did not have access to the Native American rendering of the same events. Interestingly, the Deuteronomist is seen by many scholars as the source of the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and Jeremiah. While the JEDP hypothesis has been increasingly challenged by other models in the last part of the 20th century, its terminology and insights continue to provide the framework for modern theories on the origins of the Pentateuch. Keep in mind that the common belief is not that the four sources invented a material from whole cloth, but they combined many different sources into one. In contrast, the so-called tablet theory suggests that portions of Genesis were originally written on clay tablets by men who personally experienced the events described. The tablets were later compiled by Moses. Since the original writers were said to have been eyewitnesses, their accounts should be historically accurate. I'll describe this theory in greater detail in a future episode. There have been some contemporary scholars that countered the four-source theory with their own. One such scholar is David Hoffman, a German rabbi, in his commentary on Leviticus, defended Mosaic authorship against the work of Wellhausen and others. In his book, and this is German, so bear with me for just a bit, Die Wichtensten Intensen gegen die Graf Wellhausen Hypothesis pointed out several difficulties in the Wellhausen Hypothesis primarily in his theory that the priestly code, and hence the Jewish conception of monotheism, was of late post-exilic redaction, meaning it occurred after the exile. Hoffman's approach to biblical investigation is still being studied. Also, Menachem Mendel Kasher, a Polish rabbi who later relocated to Jerusalem, shows that certain traditions of the oral Torah, shows that certain traditions of the oral Torah which so Moses quoting Genesis prior to the Epiphany at Sinai could only have been made by Moses. Based on a number of Bible verses and rabbinic statements, he suggests that Moses made use of documents authored by the patriarchs when redacting that book. In his book, Revelation Restored, Rabbi David Weiss Halvani developed a theory that's titled in Hebrew, 
with a name I'm not going to even attempt to pronounce, but it literally translates in English to, Israel has sinned. In this book, he says, and I quote, According to the biblical account itself, the people of Israel forsook the Torah in the dramatic episode of the Golden Calf, only 40 days after the revelation at Sinai. From that point on, until the time of Ezra, the scriptures reveal that the people of Israel were steeped in idolatry and negligent of the Mosaic law. End quote. He goes on to state that in the period of neglect, after the conquest of Canaan, when the originally monotheistic Israelites adopted pagan practices from their neighbors, the Torah of Moses became blemished. Bear in mind that what Christians refer to as the Pentateuch, Jewish people use the word Torah. They are largely the same. And this is where Havilah's theory gets more interesting. According to him, the idolatry and paganism continued until the time of Ezra, about 450 BC, when at last, upon their return from Babylon, the people accepted the Torah. It was at that time that the previously rejected and therefore blemished text of the Torah was recompiled and edited by Ezra and his compatriots. Halvany claims that this is supported by the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and he supports his theory with other sources, which indicate that Ezra played a role in editing the Torah. He further states that while the text of the Torah was corrupted, the oral tradition preserved intact many of the laws, which he explains is why the oral law appears to contradict the biblical text in certain details. This view was condemned in a declaration signed by many prominent Orthodox rabbis and published in the ultra-Orthodox Yedid Neum, as it was seen in being direct contradiction to the Maimonides' 13 principles of faith, which are universally accepted by all Orthodox Jews. The eighth principle states, and I quote, The Torah that we have today is the one that was dictated to Moses by God. End quote. And now you can see that religious infighting is not limited to just Christians. There are four major sources that document the book of Genesis. Specifically, the Masoretic text, the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Septuagint, and fragments of Genesis found at Qumran. The Qumran group provides the oldest manuscripts, but only includes a small portion of the book. In general, the Masoretic text is well preserved, but there are many individual instances where the others preserve an enhanced reading. As for why the book was created, a theory which has gained considerable interest although it is very, very controversial, is that the book is a Persian imperial authorization. This proposes that the Persians, after their conquest of Babylon in 538 BC, agreed to grant Jerusalem a large measure of local autonomy within the empire, but required the local authorities to produce a single law code accepted by the entire community. The two powerful groups making up the community, the priestly families who controlled the temple and who traced their origin to Moses and the wilderness wanderings, and the major land-owning families who made up the so-called elders and who traced their origins to Abraham, who had given them the land, were in conflict over many issues, and each had its own history of origins. But the Persian promise of greatly increased local autonomy for all provided a powerful incentive to cooperate in producing a single text. I'm guessing the controversy around this theory needs no explanation. In 1978, David Kleins, a professor of biblical studies at the University of Sheffield, published his book titled The Theme of the Pentateuch. It was influential because he was one of the first to take up the question of the theme of the entire five books. 
Klein's conclusion was that the overall theme is the partial fulfillment, which implies also the partial non-fulfillment, of the promise to or blessing of the patriarchs. In calling the fulfillment partial, Kleins was drawing attention to the fact that at the end of Deuteronomy, the people are still outside Canaan. To this basic plot, commonly thought to be of the Yahwist, the priestly source has added a series of covenants dividing history into stages, each with its own distinctive sign. The first covenant is between God and all living creatures, and is marked by the sign of the rainbow. The second is with the descendants of Abraham, including the so-called Ishmaelites, and others as well as Israelites, and its sign is circumcision. And the last, which doesn't appear until the book of Exodus, is with Israel alone, and its sign is the Sabbath. Each covenant is mediated by a great leader such as Noah, Abraham, and Moses. And at each stage, God progressively reveals himself by his name. Elohim with Noah, El Shaddai with Abraham, and Yahweh with Moses. In the books of Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus and the Gospel writers said that the law, meaning the various parts of the Pentateuch, were given by Moses, and the uniform tradition of Jewish scribes and early Christian fathers, and the conclusion of many conservative scholars to this present day is that Genesis was written by Moses. But, this theory does not exclude the possibility that Moses had access to patriarchal records, preserved by being written on clay tablets and handed down from father to son via the line of Adam, Seth, Noah, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc., or from others who witnessed the events. Or even that the events were described by someone who took on a role similar to that of Luke in the New Testament. If this is so, the most likely explanation of them is that Adam, Noah, Shem, and the others each wrote down an account of the events which occurred in his lifetime, and Moses selected and compiled these, along with his own comments, into the book we now know as Genesis. On a different note, it is commonly believed that enough archaeological confirmation has been found so that many historians now consider the Old Testament, at least a part after about the 11th chapter of Genesis, to be historically accurate. So that's the episode for this week. Join me next week when I'll look more deeply into the history of the book of Genesis. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at thechurchestheworld.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at thechurchestheworld.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase The Church is the World as four separate words. Thanks for listening and have a great week.